0: The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life.
1: Okay, good morning and welcome to The Source Church and uh, welcome back to your seats We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. And uh, in reverence of God's word, I invite you to stand, please. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and the sons So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of God. Amen.
0: Good morning, everyone. Let's pray before we get into God's Word. Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd. You are a good shepherd. And you're leading us, sometimes through dark places, always to green pastures. You give us what we need. And Lord, I ask that you'd meet us in our various needs this week. Lord, we think of... Jay's surgery tomorrow, we ask that you would calm any fears she might have, we ask that you would give the doctor skill, and we pray that she would heal quickly and well. Lord, we think of Ryan Brown this morning, Uh, his father passed away yesterday, and um, God, we ask that you would comfort him, we ask that um, you would give him wisdom and courage and humility as he deals with um, family in the wake of this. Lord, we hope him to, to grieve well, um, to process all of this with you in prayer. We pray also that um, that your truth would be on Ryan's lips, that he would be a light in dark places, and that you would get glory. Lord, we pray for others who are struggling in different ways, maybe struggling to put addiction to death, others experiencing marriage problems, others suffering from depression or discouragement or all sorts of uncertainty of how best to live for you in the midst of what they're experiencing. Lord, we we recognize that, that um, you are in the midst of these challenges. You are not far away. You are with your people. And so we ask for your grace, God. We ask for greater grace resulting in greater faith, resulting in greater obedience, we ask that you would be our everything, and that we would trust you. Lord, we ask for that even now as we process your words. We ask that your spirit would be active in our minds, in, in, in the eyes of our being, that we would see you rightly, that we would see you as beautiful and powerful and good, and that we would say yes to you in the very depths of our being. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. You know, our culture has a Jesus problem. They can't deny his influence across the last 20 centuries, and his influence that's really greater than ever in a lot of parts of the world right now. But our culture is too sophisticated for historic Christianity. And so we're just sort of this culture that's Christ-haunted, I guess you could say. And it frustrates me every year right around Easter when all the magazines in the grocery store aisle, they start featuring Jesus. You know the ones where he, he looks kind of mysteriously pale and has this like mystic vacant expression on his face. And the title will read something like, The real Jesus, or the search for Jesus, or who was Jesus? And if you buy this magazine, I guarantee you will leave with more questions than answers, because you'll have digested plenty of skeptical theories by some atheistic professor of religion at a well-known university. Maybe you'll learn about extra gospels that were written in the 2nd through 4th centuries, which completely call into question the character and the purpose of Jesus. And then from those deconstructed pieces, these articles will present a hypothetical Jesus who maybe is mostly a revolutionary or mostly an idealistic dreamer or mostly a sharp philosopher who just got caught up in more than he ever expected. But what these articles will never do is survey the four Gospels themselves, the only accounts actually written in the same century when Jesus lived and which are in total agreement about who Jesus is and what he came to do. So today, let me dispel the mystery. Actually, let Matthew tell you what the historic Jesus was all about, what he came to do, which incidentally is what he is still doing even now. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of light that will bring lasting peace and joy to what was a land and a people of darkness and death. And how does that kingdom come? In this passage, we're going to see four main things that Jesus is doing. He's giving a call for repentance. He's giving a call to follow. He's teaching and preaching, which we'll talk about as sort of two wings of the same plane. And finally, he's healing. So four ways in which the light is dawning through Jesus' ministry. The call to follow. Sorry, the call to repentance, the call to follow, teaching and proclaiming, and healing. And it's between those four tent pegs, you could say, that we see the kingdom of God emerging. But before we think about those ways in which the light of Christ comes, we have to start with darkness. And it's an act of darkness that actually gives rise to this whole section as we learn that John the Baptist has been arrested. We remember back in chapter 2, that Herod the Great was attempting to have the infant Jesus killed. Well, now his son, Herod Antipas, has imprisoned the prophet who was the forerunner to Jesus. And so Jesus' public ministry is essentially starting here with a retreat away from Judea, away from Jerusalem, where everyone expected the Messiah to set up shop. Instead, Jesus is just back in the same surprisingly podunk area where he grew up. So how should we think about this? Matthew reminds us that actually it couldn't have been any other way. He quotes from Isaiah 9 to show that this very area was prophesied to be where the dawn of the Christ would first rise, the land of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was some of the first area to be overrun by Israel's enemies back in Isaiah's day. And in Jesus' day, even though the land was resettled, Jews would still have considered this a compromised area, just like full of as many pagans as Jews. And yet it was strangely in this land of darkness that the light of the world began his ministry. Did you know that it's still that way? Like where is the gospel most likely to reemerge and to start shaking things up? It's usually not in the places that we would expect It often takes root in the darkest places because that's where the light of the kingdom shines most starkly and visibly. This is true across history, actually. If you think about church history, the first 600 years, it was the Mediterranean world, including the Middle East and North Africa. That was the center of Christianity. And then they started taking the light for granted. But awakening came to Europe, and Europe was the center of Christendom for centuries until they grew complacent and so for the last 300 years North America has really been at the center of the Gospels advance But now as we in North America kind of naval gaze instead of treasuring Christ As our churches are turning into libraries or restaurants or what have you God isn't somehow handcuffed by our apathy and our overfamiliarity with light No, he's at work elsewhere the forefront of Christ's dawn right now is in Africa and Asia, regions that we might be tempted to think of as God-forsaken because of deep poverty or warfare or corruption, etc. But just as in his earthly ministry, Jesus' ministry still gravitates toward those who are familiar enough with darkness to rightly see their need of him. And this is true not only regarding geography, but it's also true when we think about the circumstances of the lives of, Of those who are coming to Christ now I want to be clear that I'm not saying I'm not saying only the down and outs can receive Christ that's not true even in verse 25 we see that despite Jesus avoiding this prominent area of Jerusalem and Judea he still has followers coming to him from that area and we know that some of Jesus followers were wealthy some of them were well educated coming from the good neighborhoods so to speak But the Gospels do go out of their way to emphasize the unexpected regions and the unexpected people that actually respond more strongly to Jesus than does the supposedly upright culture and the religious insiders. And it's the same today. Christ is dawning over drug addicts and the sexually broken, over the homeless, And the inmates, over the refugees and the abuse victims, over those who have known unspeakable darkness, on them a light has dawned. And if that describes you today, then know that it pleases Christ to dwell with you, whatever your horrible circumstances. He can live in your midst. Or if you're someone who has always lived safely among those who take the light for granted, Well, then, you need to know that this is where your Lord is going. It's through dark regions. That's where he's bringing his light. So if you're hoping for a safe and a sanitized following of Jesus, I'm afraid you may be disappointed because as you follow him more closely, you'll find yourself surrounded by other people's troubles that you never cared about before. In Jesus' footsteps, you're going to identify with the troubled and the hurting But at the same time, you won't mind, because there in the dark, you get to watch the sunrise. So this theme of light piercing the darkness, it's like a broad heading over Jesus' ministry. But what does that look like practically? Point one, it starts with Jesus giving a call to repentance. Verse 17 starts to get specific, telling us, From that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is the same message that we saw John the Baptist was preaching back in chapter 3, verse 2. So we see that this concept of repentance is still the foundation for any participation in what Jesus is about, any participation in the kingdom that he's bringing requires the starting place of repentance. Jesus won't have you just kind of pondering him like a historical puzzle. He demands that you turn. So he continues the testimony of the whole Bible that says something is sick and broken in humanity and we have all contributed to it. And we are all called now to stop turning from our king and to start turning toward him. And that call is persistent. It's not just for the start of our faith journey. The entire Christian life is to be one of continual repentance, keeping short accounts with God, turning back to him as often as we turn away, turning back more and more quickly as we grow in maturity. We're more sensitive to our sin. We hate it more. We learn from our experiences to trust the goodness of God's way. And so our repentance grows more and more vigilant until... Eventually, we're taking every thought captive and we're shooting down our rebellion before it even starts. John the Baptist calls this bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So this was the starting place of Jesus' message. I want to ask, how are we doing in bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Is anything holding you back from even wanting to look at Jesus right now? Is there any impurity that you're protecting and you're saying, No, God, you can't take this from me. You can't kill this in my life. Are there any duties that you're ignoring because, well, life is just too hard right now to make that change? But if you're honest, you know that you kind of know that the time is never going to be right. You're just making excuses to stay the way that you're comfortable. Are there any grudges that you're harboring? and that you honestly want to keep feeling entitled to hold against someone? Is there any self-importance that you're entertaining so that it's, you're always in the place of judge? It's very easy to assess others, but you're too smug to think of the harm your actions and attitudes may be causing. If any of these sorts of tendencies are in the way, then we just won't be able to experience the rest of Jesus' priorities. So repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've seen that Jesus' ministry started in an unexpected place. Well, now, starting in verse 18, we see that it started with an unexpected people. In those days, Jewish rabbis had this, they had like a line of, of the sharpest and the most devout young men from good families, and they'd come and apply to sit under the teacher's training. But Jesus doesn't work like that. He doesn't take applicants he goes out and he calls them. And those he calls in this chapter are not the, the polished and the prepared ones. They're common tradesmen. I mean, economically not bad off, but certainly not wealthy or refined or terribly well-educated. Jesus is focusing on some really unspectacular people. Isn't that good news? Because, believe it or not, we are unspectacular people. But as we realize that, we find that he actually has great use for us, specifically in the fact that no one will say, well, of course God used that person. He or she is extremely qualified. No, instead people are going to say, huh, you know, this, this kind of makes me believe because Christ has done amazing things in and through these relative nobodies. In Acts 4.13 It says, now when the leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's what happens with unspectacular people. All attention goes not to the called ones, but to the master who calls them and empowers them. So here Jesus makes them, um, he promises to make them fishers, not Not of bass or pike, but of men and women. And it's astonishing how effective they are. If you think about the the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, Peter, scared Peter, bumbling Peter, preaches, and 3,000 fish are caught that day. But of course, the light of the dawning kingdom is only going to be reflected in this way When the unspectacular people are totally devoted, completely surrendered to their spectacular king. And this is point number two, that the light of Christ comes through his call to follow. His call to follow. What would Jesus' people be expected to do? So continuing from that posture of repentance, verses 18 through 22, then next tell us we must follow. There's, there's an action sequence here, and uh, it shows us a big truth. We must respond by following immediately. There are two calls here, really. We, both of them have the same emphasis. There's like a, a parallelism going on. The emphasis is immediate obedience. So let's read it again. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Notice how they lost all thought about their nets, this valuable possession that their whole livelihood depends on. They just just walk away. Verse 21, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their, and their father, and followed him. So it's emphasized that they leave the boat and their father. And we're going to see other places in Matthew also that Jesus demands to be prioritized above even our own families. Now, with such a, a simple but dramatic first picture of what it is to follow Jesus, we we need to seriously think about this scene and what it means for us. Now, certainly, if you're seeing Jesus for the first time today, then the application is straightforward. He is calling, rise and follow him, period. But even for those of us who would already consider ourselves followers of Jesus, there's there's a radical picture here that we need to latch on to. And let's also, while we're at it, loop in chapter 9, verse 9, where Matthew records his own first encounter with Jesus. In that verse, he writes, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, you don't just rise and walk away from your job at a Roman tax booth. Or from your family fishing career, for that matter. Not without some ramifications. Economic, social, maybe even legal so this might make us wonder, is, is such a drastic breakaway really necessary at this point? Like, couldn't Jesus have just come and, and given them a sort of religious encounter, but more or less left them as he found them before? And it scares us to think about what this radical breakaway might mean for us, for the changes that Jesus might call us to make in our own lives. So to help us think about these callings, these three callings, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and also Matthew, I'm going to quote and paraphrase a lot from a book, a really helpful book, called The Cost of Discipleship. This was written in 1937 by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a a German pastor, and you should know that Bonhoeffer ended up paying the ultimate price himself in order to follow Jesus. Eight years after he wrote this book, he was executed in a Nazi prison. So... Bonhoeffer starts by pointing out just the bare-bones details about these narratives. Jesus comes up, he says, follow me, and they do it immediately and unconditionally. End of story. Now, on one level, that's really unsatisfying for us, right? Because we start thinking, surely there was some previous knowledge about Jesus. Maybe there were some conversations that were had previously, and that's why they so easily got up and followed him. Maybe, but it's not recorded for us here, and that's because it's irrelevant for Matthew's purpose. Matthew has no interest in telling us the story of John or Peter or himself, quote-unquote, coming to faith. No, what he's interested in showing us is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus says, follow me, and therefore there's no choice but to follow Because Jesus is the Christ, he has the authority to demand obedience to his call and to his word. And this raises the question, well, if these verses are showing us a first encounter with Jesus, then which comes first, the following or the faith? And Bonhoeffer says, of course, if we're talking about how we're accepted by God, how we're justified, then yes, we know, we know faith comes before obedience. We're not accepted by God based on our obedience. We have to be clear on that point. And, and so there must have been some spark of faith that enabled these fishermen to trust this Christ that they didn't yet know. But when you're talking about what does it look like when someone truly comes to Christ, what does that look like when God's grace is truly at work? Well, then what we see here is that faith and obedience... Are inseparable only the one who believes can truly follow we can get our minds around that you have to believe before you follow but also we see only the one who follows truly believes our obedience is fueled by faith and our faith is evidenced by our obedience so if there's no faith present, well, we we can understand that problem. Then the the so-called disciple is just playing some sort of self-serving game that can't give life. We we think that's probably probably was the case for Judas. But on the other hand, if we claim to have faith, but there's no obedience to the word of Jesus. In other words, we say we believe. We can sign off on all the the doctrines. Yes, I I agree. I I confess this. I believe, but we're not willing to get up and follow him. Then any so-called discipleship is built on cheap grace, which is actually fake grace. It's an experience that's useless because while it may make us feel forgiven for a time, it's not changing us. And in that case, what we're really trusting in is just the idea of forgiveness or not trusting in and following the living Christ who tells us to get up and follow him. So cheap grace that doesn't result in us following Jesus, that can't save us any more than following Jesus, any more than if we were to go through the motions but not believe. It goes both ways. So the road of saving faith passes through obedience to Jesus' commands. This means that when real grace is in play, you know, of course there's faith in those, those who believe, but, but what you'll see outwardly is immediate and unconditional obedience to the word of Christ. And that's what we should learn from these scenes of disciples responding to the call of Jesus. You know, sometimes we're so scared of preaching some sort of earning our salvation by good works, That we don't take seriously Christ's demand for our obedience. And the fact that saving faith, if it is present, it does lead to responsive following. And, you know, sometimes we're quick to optimistically convince ourselves that, like, well, so-and-so, this person in my life, yeah, I think they're coming to faith because they do express an interest in learning more and in discovering Jesus but, all the while, they're keeping his demands on their lives at arm's length. Or, or we tend to be infinitely patient with someone who professes faith, but who will only obey Jesus up to a point. Well, I want to break the news to you that any sort of faith that these people express, it's going to be short-lived unless and until they decide to truly get up and follow Jesus even before they fully understand, even before they feel like it. Now, it's not the following that saves them, but when the grace of God is really at work, true faith results in following. So the upshot of this call to discipleship is that no one should be surprised at the difficulty of having faith if there's some part of your life where you're consciously resisting or disobeying the command of Jesus. It's going to feel hard to have faith Bonhoeffer asks, could that be why you have no sense of the presence of the Holy Spirit? Or that prayer is difficult? Or that your request for faith remains unanswered? He says, renounce the sin which holds you fast and then you will recover your faith. How can you hope to enter into communion with Christ while at some point in your life you're running away from him? First, renounce your attachments. Give up the obstacles which separate you from the will of God then you'll find yourself in a situation where faith will seem possible again, where, in fact, faith already exists. So Bonhoeffer imagines this hypothetical conversation. So imagine that a man sits down with his pastor and says, you know, I've I've lost the faith that I once had. And the pastor says, well, you need to listen to the word that's spoken to you in the sermon. I do, says the man, but I, I can't get anything out of it. As far as I'm concerned, it just falls on deaf ears. So the pastor replies, well, the trouble is you don't really want to listen. No, I, on the contrary, I do, says the man. And, and here, generally, the conversation breaks off because the pastor is at a loss what to say next. He, he knows the truth that only those who believe can obey. And so he, he throws up his hands and he says, well, this person must not have faith. There's, there's nothing I can do if he won't believe. But this could be the turning point of the conversation. Bonhoeffer says, the pastor should give up arguing with him and stop taking his difficulties seriously because he's only trying to hide himself behind this supposed lack of faith. It's now time to take the bull by the horns and say, only those who obey actually believe. The pastor should say, You're trying to keep some part of your life under your control. That's what's preventing you from listening to Christ, from believing in his grace. You can't hear Christ because you're willfully disobedient. Somewhere in your heart, you're refusing to listen to his call. So the pastor must exhort the man to obedience, to action, to take the first step. He must say, tear yourself away from all other attachments and follow Jesus. And only after the self is dragged out from his hiding place behind cheap grace, then he'll gain the freedom to actually see and hear and believe. So there's more we're going to look at in the next verses, but this is heavy. And I just want to pause here for a minute and pray for anyone who finds himself in this position. If you find that you're you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance... You know that Jesus in his word has called you to get up and leave something, but you're resisting that clear command of scripture, and as a result, you're missing out on a life of discipleship. And though you have faith in Christ, it feels stifled, it feels deadened, and now you're starting to see why. Let me pray for such a person right now. Father, give your grace, give enabling grace to those who need to take a definitive step away from the disobedience that they've been cherishing. Remind them of your clear commands in Scripture, all of which are included in these two simple words, follow me. So by your power and your goodness, let today be the first day in a new chapter of freedom. Give them joy in the renewed adventure of following you with total devotion in complete surrender. We pray this through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ for us. Amen. So, verse 23, it zooms back out again and it shows us the activities that Jesus was about. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So, here is point number three Jesus causes the light to dawn through his teaching and his proclamation. Those are two different things, but they're complementary things. They're like two wings of an airplane that delivers God's truth into the depths of our being. So teaching opens up a text and explains it in detail. Proclaiming announces the truth with urgency and exhorts people to take action in response. And we desperately need both, don't we? And hopefully that's why you're listening to me right now because you know that you need teaching and proclamation. You need the text explained and you need the text applied. Well, in addition to sermons, we can all function as teachers and proclaimers to each other. We need brothers and sisters to teach us when we're thinking wrongly about something, to see, to help us see the connections in scripture that we'd missed previously. We should all be open to learning from each other and None of us should always find ourselves in only the position of teacher. I want to tell you that even if you're a fairly new Christian, if you've been prayerfully meditating on a certain part of the Bible, God may give you something to teach me, and I always want to be open to that. And we also need our brothers and sisters in Christ to proclaim the Word of God to us, even in informal settings, maybe in life group or downstairs over snacks, We don't just need a listening ear to hear our sorrows and then nod in agreement with whatever solutions or verdicts we've cooked up for ourselves. We need proclaimer friends who will exhort us and confront our lives when we're too certain of our perspective, and also who will speak courage and comfort to us when that's what we most need from God's word, but we've been harshly denying it to ourselves. So Jesus brings his light through teaching and proclamation. Finally, point number four, this light of Christ is dawning in the darkness through Jesus' work of healing. It was then, and it still is now. We read that he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so, especially in this era before modern medicine, you you can imagine how it says his fame spread throughout Syria. And examples are given here of those who were brought to him. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains. I I imagine things like cancer, arthritis, leprosy, heart conditions. Also those oppressed by demons. Almost everyone in ancient societies understood the reality of demonic oppression. And one scholar says that examples of it remain common enough today so as to be deniable only through severe naturalistic prejudice. In other words, you have to really cover your eyes in order to explain this away. Also, Jesus healed those having seizures and paralytics. Something that's interesting in this list is that oppression by demons is mixed right there between what we would consider classical uh, medical terms. Our modern notion of ailments of the body is being completely removed from anything spiritual. Might I suggest that's a little bit naive? I'm not saying that every time someone is sick or diseased it's because of a demon or because of a problem with their soul. Often we do get sick or injured just because of pathogens and accidents or the random brokenness of our surroundings. We live in a corrupted world. Everybody gets sick. It's a byproduct of the fall. But... It's also certainly true that the immune systems of those who are plagued by great anxiety or grief or terror or guilt can be significantly weakened. And it's also true, especially as you get into that mental health arena, that some conditions have no good explanation and sometimes can go away without a medical explanation as well. Now, the Bible isn't trying to teach us about medicine, but what it does show us is that our brokenness can't be so easily compartmentalized. In the Gospel of Luke, which, by the way, was written by a physician, when Jesus is described as healing someone, he often uses a word that can mean to heal or to save. In Greek, it could it could go either way. So you could even translate Luke 19.10 as the Son of Man came to seek and heal the lost. And in the Gospels, Whenever people are healed, it's never just about that healing. Have you noticed that? They're healed or they're saved from that condition. Why? So that people might recognize Jesus. So that people might see the nature of his coming kingdom and trust in him for whole person healing or salvation. You could say that the healings are signs that are pointing to something further. So when Jesus heals people, he's never like, hey, you're welcome. That's that's just what I'm here to do. No, he says stuff like your sins are forgiven or go and tell people what God has done for you or see you are well, sin no more. So he sometimes saves us, heals us from our most felt needs so that we will depend on him for our truest need. And the whole book of Matthew is structured in such a way as to show us that truest need. We have these sections of teaching that are interwoven with sections that showcase healing. And then there are sections that call for repentance that are interwoven with sections in which the disciples are wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus. And then all four of these currents weave together and end up in chapters 26 to 28 as the repentant and well-taught Jesus crowd witnesses the fulfillment of their healing, as Christ died as a sacrifice for sin in our place to cleanse us and to free us to truly follow him, not only through the dark places, but into glory and endless joy. So where are you in darkness today? Where do you need to be turned around to walk in the light? Where are you foolish and ignorant In what way do you need to be taught by Jesus? In what way do you need healing? Whether it's literal, physical healing, maybe some frightening or debilitating condition, maybe some mental or emotional healing, whatever you've got, come to Jesus. He is making all things new, starting with his people. So if your trust is in him, he will heal your soul He will guide you to wisdom. He will lead you into that lasting kingdom that has drawn near. So I hope that this sort of montage that we've seen today of Jesus' early ministry, I hope you see exactly that, that Jesus isn't interested in just bringing light to one slice of your life. He comes to people who know that they are in darkness, and he calls them unconditionally, and he trains and he heals the whole person, And as we follow him unconditionally, like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we're going to find ourselves participating in the same things that our master does. We're going to find that we're in the thick of the mess, equipped to give the light of Christ to others. We will weep with those who weep. We will rejoice with those who will rejoice. We will pray and teach and be used for the healing of the sin-sick and the oppressed. And we do all of this because... We have been made into Jesus' people. Now this passage ends by saying that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We see this was not done in secret. The light had dawned and word was getting out and word is still getting out today. So the real mystery that concerns us isn't who is Jesus, but rather who are we? in light of who he is? And the answer is clear. We are people dwelling in darkness who have seen a great light. We are people who must urgently turn away from dark deeds and gaze into that light. We are people going about unspectacular lives who are commanded to get up and follow. We are needy individuals in a great crowd from all over that will let Jesus displace us because we know that in response... Jesus will make us whole. So Lord, we pray for our own discipleship this morning. We ask that we would see these things clearly. We ask that if there are any dark corners of our lives, that your light would dawn on them today. Make us wholehearted disciples. Give us the instruction and the healing that comes from following you. Wrap us up into what you're doing in this world and give us joy. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.